Help us, Lord God, to understand Your Word this evening as we come to now desire the food of Your Word. May we be able, Lord God, to take it into our hearts and into our minds and understand, Lord, Your ways, which are greater than our ways. We might come to a greater understanding of Your thoughts, which are greater than our thoughts. Lord, we will take hold of, of the kinds of actions that You want us to take for the sake of the kingdom and for the glory of the name of Christ. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray tonight and ask that You would lead us, guide us, fill us with Your Spirit that we may come to a greater understanding of Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. Now, the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 10 are really a continuation of the prophecy against Israel and in particular Judah as they have disobeyed God, as they have gone to do certain things uh, as leaders in taking advantage of the people, of allowing the wickedness of their hearts to consume them without turning and seeking the Lord. Three times in chapter 9 we see the phrase, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And one more time we see it in verse 4 of chapter 10. And so as this prophecy, as this judgment continues, again we see the word woe. Oi in the Hebrew. I know that uh, a lot of times we've heard people say oi vey. There is another expression in the Hebrew. It's oi vavoy. Woe of woes. And this signifies a judgment that is coming upon people who should have a trust in the Lord but do not who do the outward celebrations or the outward ceremonies and rites, but inwardly they're far from God. And eventually God has to judge His own people. And we have to say that there are times even in the church When men and women take their eyes off of the Lord and put them on other things and other ways and other events, and not that God is wanting to wipe out, but God wants to draw back. And many times the only way He can awaken His church is to lift the hedge, as it were, to allow some kind of Conviction of the Holy Spirit, uh, some kind of uh, chastisement. 
And we know that as we read the book of Hebrews and it mentions and quotes from Proverbs, the passage that deals with discipline and chastisement. And it's as important in the church as it, uh, as it was in the Old Testament uh, covenant with, with uh, God and His people, Israel. So with that in mind, in verse 1, the prophet continues to say, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees. Now, what is that telling you? That tells, that's telling us that this is a prophecy directed toward leaders. People who make decisions, make decrees, establish laws, or establish statutes. And he says, woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees. Notice, not just any kind of good decree, but an unrighteous decree. Who writes misfortune. Now, who would do that? Who would write unrighteous decrees and write misfortune for people? Only those who would write those laws for others so that they themselves would benefit. So, the prophet says, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed, notice why, verse 2, to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people. And I tell you what, when you stop there and think about that phrase that God gives, to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, I think you better be careful when you begin to take advantage of the poor. Because who defends the poor? Who defends the widow? Who defends the fatherless? As we read in Scripture, it's God Himself. To rob the needy of justice, to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey. Not to pray for widows, but that the widows would be prey. In other words, like, you know, the, you know these scavenger type of animals or hunting type animals are searching out their prey to attack and to eat them up. That kind of prey. And that they may rob the fatherless. Well, these are not good guys. These are not people that... that uh, have a, a, a nice bone in their body. But notice the question given to them. What will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners, and they shall fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still, still out there, still ready to judge, still ready to bring judgment. It's not left yet. You know, for more years than any of us would want to admit, Man has looked to superheroes to be the glorious examples of truth, righteousness. 
or as in one old, old show, truth, justice, and the American way. Man looks for some kind of superhero to be the protectors of the weak, to be the providers of the poor, to be those uh, whose their perseverance through the injustices life throws at them with abandon. But not one superhero could ever match the enormity of Messiah's justice and Messiah's righteousness. Isn't it interesting that man looks for someone to be super when there's always been one who is greater than all the superhuman beings that we could create in our minds? Man, and we could create a whole bunch of them. Superman, Batman. I don't know about Robin, but... The Flash, he was one of my favorites. Captain America. We've got to have somebody out there. We don't need anybody. We've got Jesus. We've got the Messiah. And I'm not trying to make him a superhero. He's above all of that. He's greater than all. And look at the enormity. We read about it last, uh, last few weeks in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Man, I tell you what, that sounds a whole, like, a whole lot better than some guy standing there in blue and pink leotards and a flag flowing behind him and everybody says, truth, justice in the American way. This is better. He is wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of His government, there'll be no end. All you need for Superman is kryptonite. But Jesus has already died. And He's risen from the dead. And He's alive. And He's coming again. And we need to be ready. I've got to tell you, I'm so thankful for you all being here. I really am. Every Wednesday night, I am so thankful that you come, that you desire God's Word. Now, I speak to you as I should, but I sure would like to speak to anybody sitting in those other chairs that are empty, because they need to hear God's Word too. You see, the time's short. The time is short. What are we doing with the time we have remaining? I really, I really believe that it, this, this idea that, uh, listen, man is going to make the world better. How can we make the world better when we let some crazy little guy speak to the United Nations and say all kinds of weird things about 
his own thoughts and ideas, of, not, not saying them outright, but we've already heard them because he said them on, on, on other news sources and stuff about destroying Israel and getting rid of Israel and annihilating Israel and getting rid of you know, all of those elements that stand with Israel. Well, who are they? It's the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, who knows why Israel is here today. Somebody who wants atomic power. Why? You know, for energy? No. To wipe a whole race of people off the face of the earth. We know that already. What are we going to do? Hand him a, a Coca-Cola and tell him, just drink this and we'll all be okay. Right? But unto us a child is born. Unto us the Son is given. And by the way, that's happened. He came. And the ones who should have caught Him missed Him. But they'll get Him again when He comes again. Every eye shall see Him. Especially those who pierced Him. They shall see Him. He's coming. As we look at our text here, we realize, we realize that the corrupt leaders in Israel were perverting the cause of justice. They were perverting the cause of righteousness, which actually rivaled the injustices and the unrighteousness of the nations that surrounded them. Those who would read this prophecy should have realized that this woe would befall them if they followed their leader's wicked ways. And many of them did. I want to take you back to Isaiah chapter 3 for just a moment. Go back to verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah chapter 3. It says, For Jerusalem stumbled. What does that tell you? We studied that quite a few weeks ago. But as a point of reminder, as a point of review, it says, For Jerusalem stumbled, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord. Isn't that something? That their tongues and their doings are against the very Lord God who created them to be His people? To provoke the eyes of His glory? The look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul. Notice that word again. Oy. Woe to their soul. For they have brought evil upon themselves. Their unjust Court practices, which Isaiah repeatedly condemned, were based on unrighteous laws and decrees that just added troubles to an already tormented people, putting heavy burdens on them, which were merely forms of extortion. What could they get out of poor people? Well, whatever they could get out of them, they got it. And on top of that, gave them more. Burdens, more heavy trials. And see, God hates that kind of injustice. Think about Psalm 80, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 58, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 58, 1 and 2 says, Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? But notice verse 2, No, he says, in heart you work wickedness. 
you weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. These are powerful statements. There are some people who don't want to read these things in church. Don't read that. That's so negative. It's hard to smile when we read that. Of course it is. Because God is going to bring to an end the injustices of men with His righteousness and with His justice. You know, it is an ugly sin when professed leaders such as those in Israel at the time of Isaiah would be simply unfair to others and praying on the weak. I mean, it's an ugly thing. And what is so good about enriching themselves? Just think about the question. What is so good about enriching themselves at the expense of the poor, the needy, and the fatherless? What is so good about that? You know, the sad part of that is that a lot of people live today in our day and age, in our society, doing the very same thing. Taking from the poor to be richer themselves. The written legislation that uh, that Israel had received from Moses aimed at the protection of widows and orphans. Everything had to do with taking care of people. In particular, taking care of their own. And if you'll notice in Isaiah 11, which will be in the, the next chapter, but nonetheless, just look ahead here to Isaiah 11 and verse 4, and notice that it says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And that is the contrast to the way that the leaders of Israel were judging the people at the time. He says, With righteousness. God, or Messiah, will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Unrighteousness will be judged. Wickedness will be judged. We might think sometimes there's too much wickedness in the world. There's too much hatred in the world. There's too much injustice in the world. There's too much crime in the world. There's, there, there's, too, there's too much evil in the world, yes. But I can tell you right now, Jesus Christ, when He comes to establish His kingdom on this earth for a thousand years, is going to deal with every one of those things. He's going to deal with it, wickedness and with evil and with unrighteousness and with uh, unfairness. Because He is a God of justice. He is a God of righteousness. He is a God of holiness. Yes, He is a God of love. Yes, He's a God of mercy. That is being expressed to us right now. That is what the church age is all about. Bring people to the mercy and the grace and the truth and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because no one should want to die in their sins apart from Christ. For that will be judged for eternity. That is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is part of the gospel that Paul himself preached when he said in in, in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. 
Two verses later, he says, For the wrath of God will come upon all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You say, that's bad news. That's right. That's the bad news before you get to the good news in chapter 3 of Romans. We've got to deal with the bad news. But that's part of the good news. Part of the good news that we need to understand is Jesus already came. Jesus came in the flesh without sin, never sinned, would never sin. And He went to the cross bearing the sins of each and every one of us here and bearing the sins of men. With righteousness He will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips He shall slay the wicked. It's a good time for us to get right with God if we haven't yet. Because all this is certainly hateful to Him who is a God of judgment and by whom actions are weighed. Did you know that all actions are weighed by Him? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The actions of our life, the things that we do, are weighed by God. Will our actions in this life be found wanting? Will they be found lacking? Because we were expecting so much from everybody else to bless us with and us never blessing anyone else. You see, I think that part of the problem with some of the church today is that people want to get blessed and so they come up with a gospel of blessing and, you know, that, that's the only thing. You know, well, yeah, you, need, you can be blessed. and Oh, listen. They don't tell you what David said when he said, It is good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might know thy statutes. Or Paul, when he talks about putting on himself the sufferings of Christ. Or when he says, uh, you know, leaving the past behind, I look forward striving to win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, the Christian life is a glorious life when we let Christ live it through us and with us and in us. It's glorious. But it's not so glorious when all we got is complaints or all we've got is, you know, things to say or things to say about, you know, well, it didn't bless me, you know, that didn't bless me or this didn't bless me. Well, what blesses you? i tell you what blesses me. I'll tell you right now. What blesses me is knowing that I won't go to hell because Jesus died for my sins. And I will live eternally saved and safe from eternal punishment. Man, that blesses me. And that is something we can have an assurance of tonight. We can have it tomorrow. We can have it until Jesus comes. 
It's a sad thing when there are a lot of cults going around, you know, that don't have that assurance of salvation. They feel like they've got to go door to door and bang on your doors. And folks, by the way, there's nothing wrong with going door to door. If God sends you out there, go tell people about Jesus. Problem is, they go door to door. Some people go door to door because they feel like they've got to do those works. But you see, our salvation is not based on works. Our salvation is based upon the grace of God and faith in Jesus Christ. Should that keep us from going out and telling people about Jesus? No, it should motivate us to go out and tell people about Jesus because we don't want anybody to go to hell and spend an eternity apart from, from God. Do you all sense a, a theme here? Or are you just guys are just tired from the day and you're just letting me go on and on and flap my lids here? You know, just... Are you humoring me? I hope you're not humoring me. I hope you're listening to what I'm saying. And I hope you're getting encouraged by it, not discouraged. Okay. And the questions now go to verse 3. The questions in verse 3 of our text, they cut to the heart, don't they? Isaiah 10 verse 3 says, What will you do in the day of punishment? And in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? He said, Who are you going to go flee for help? When you're beating on the poor? When you're robbing the poor? When you're beating on the fatherless and taking everything that they've got? Where are you going to go when you need help? And where will you leave your glory? Because by the things that you do, you're leaving only shame. And this is the thought here. Please understand the thought of these questions by the prophet. The thought is this. When you have forsaken others in their time of need, who will you go to for help when you're in need? Think about that. When, when you have forsaken others in their time of need, who will you go to help when you're in need. In other words, those who are now powerful will then be helpless. They will not know how to secure their ill-gotten riches. As Isaiah describes it, these will cringe among the captives. This is how he's going to say it here in just a moment. They're going to cringe among the captives who being deported and in chains cannot walk erect. Or they, they will sink to the ground exhausted or fall in battle as though run through by a sword. And even then the wrath of God will not be stilled. Notice at the end of verse 4, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. I want you to consider the words of the Lord to Edom. There's a prophecy against Edom. In Obadiah's prophecy. Obadiah is a little book. It's a one chapter book and in Obadiah verse 15 it says for the day of the Lord upon all nations is near as you have done it shall be done to you notice that as you have done it shall be done to you your reprisal shall return upon your own head and I've got to tell you that, uh, that statement is, is so 
perfect for today. Just to give you an idea, Edom mistreated Israel. They were, they were related, you know, through Esau. This were the descendants of Esau who went over to the other side of the, in the Red Mountains, and Edom means red, and so, you know, uh, when we were in Israel, we were down at the Dead Sea, and across the Dead Sea and these hills and mountains, that was the land of Edom. And we saw that land. But they had no love for Israel. And how they mistreated their cousins, as it were. And this is why God says to them, The day of the Lord is near. As you have done, so it shall be done to you. A lot of people are missing out on a lot of things that are happening today because they're missing the point by not looking at the Scriptures and realizing that these things are happening today. Every nation in, in history past, ancient history, that mistreated the Jewish people, they were treated the same way. One example in modern history, well, relatively modern history. We know what the regime of, of Nazi Germany did against the Jew, against the Jews in general. And for the most part, the country followed Hitler and the Third Reich. Though well, they may not have agreed with what they were doing to the Jews. Nonetheless, there were a lot of silent voices. And they used to round up the Jews and put them into, into ghettos, build walls around them. And any Jews that tried to get out, they shot them. What happened after World War II? The nation of Germany was, was divided because of Russia coming into the war and all. And then the main city of Berlin was divided into west and east, and they built a wall. And the people that were inside of that wall, from the standpoint of the communists, when they wanted to escape, what did they do? They shot them. As you have done, so shall it be done to you. Think about that. Russia has not treated Jews very well. As a matter of fact, they even killed more Jews than the Germans did over a number of years. This great, mighty nation of Russia that was called the Soviet Union for so many years, through Stalin and you know the, the philosophies of Lenin, the philosophies of Marxism and Marx, but Stalin carried it out. They mistreated the Jews, God's people. What has happened? There's no more Soviet Union. 
Uh, the country itself is divided up. Oh, well, it will be powerful again in a lot of ways, but it's not what it was before. Divided up. They began to support Islamic fundamentalism and Islamic terrorism and Islamic groups. As you have done, so it shall be done to you. What happens today? One of the greatest tragedies happened in, in Russia, in Beslan. Who was it? Islamic terrorists. You support them, they're going to eat you up. So we can go on and on and on and on and on. So it touches us now. And I'm not going to go into all the politics of today. All I know is there's an Israel and there are people there. God has brought them there for a reason. Because he said, I will not forsake my people. And they will be in their land. That's scriptural. And they're there. Jesus is coming soon. We've got to wake up to what the Bible is saying. It's coming alive to us more and more each and every day. Getting back to our text here, Adam Clark writes this. He says, As the people had hitherto lived without God in worship and obedience, so they should now be without His help and should perish in their transgressions. As you have done, so it should be done to you. All God needs, you see, to do to bring extreme judgment on Israel is to withdraw His protection. And if you'll notice in verse 4, there's a phrase there, Without me you have no hope before your enemies. Notice that, verse 4. Without me they shall bow down among the prisoners, they shall fall among the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Without me you have no hope before your enemies. This is what's going to happen. You forsook me, you forsook my law, you forsook my mercy, you forsook my judgment, you forsook my grace, you forsook my law and my commandments. You want to live without me? Without me you have no hope before your enemies. That's not only clear. It makes sense, doesn't it? If we're with God, He's going to be with us. If we don't want God in our lives, what are we going to do? We won't stand. The judgment against Israel's injustice was not enough. There was still sin to judge and God wasn't ready to stop His work of judgment. By the way, if you were here last time, I said that three times. Every time the phrase, for all this His anger is not turned away. There was still sin to judge and God wasn't ready to stop His work of judgment. The repetition of this phrase reminds us that God's judgment is persistent. God's judgment is persistent. It moves from faith to faith to find repentance. And folks, that is a missing jewel in the church of Jesus Christ today. That people are, you know, we're, we're finding so many struggles and so many trials within the church, within families, within households, and, and, and everybody's got something to say about the other person, and, but nobody's repenting. Nobody's dying to themselves and falling on their face and crying out to God and says, Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against my family or I've sinned against someone in my family. I've sinned against them. Lord God, forgive me. 
When have we done that? All we hear is, well, she did this or he did that or she did this and he did that. And I'm thinking, get on your face and ask God for forgiveness. You see, that means that it makes a whole lot of sense for us to repent now. Because God's judgment is persistent for all eternity. It makes sense to repent. Think of Isaiah 5.25. We studied this a few weeks ago. Therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against His people. He has stretched out His hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. And notice this. We've already seen this. For all this His anger is not turned away. But his hand is stretched out still. And now this prophecy against Israel and Judah ends here for now so that God can deal with the arrogance of Assyria. Now notice in verse 5 it says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire in the streets. What is that telling you? God is going to use Assyria to judge his people because they will not listen to him. They will not follow him. God is going to use the mighty Assyrian army to come and to tread them down, to bring God's wrath upon His own people, to bring this conviction, to bring this chastisement for their disobedience to their God, to seize the spoil, to take the prey, to trade them down like the mire in the streets. But notice verse 7, Yet He does not mean so, nor does His heart think so, but it is in His heart to destroy and to cut off not a few nations. Now let's come to an understanding of this. This is all we're really going to get tonight. In the previous section found in Isaiah 7, chapter 7, all the way through 10, verse 4, which we just finished studying, that whole section there, the Lord revealed that He would use Assyria as an instrument of judgment against three nations. Syria, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. From chapter 7 to where we ended just a little while ago in verse 4. He's going to use Assyria as an instrument of judgment against Syria, Israel, and Judah. But what about, what about Assyria? You have to understand this. God is not saying, okay, my people have forsaken me, so I've got new friends now. They're the Assyrians. They're my buddies now. No. Please don't think that. Don't even come close to thinking that. This is a heathen nation. And verse 7 tells us what their thought process is. Verse 7 tells us they don't mean the same way that God means. They don't think in their hearts the same way. All they want to do is destroy. Now, God is going to use that. But how they treat His people is going to determine what He does to them. And God can do that. I'll explain how in just a moment. 
So what about Assyria? Weren't they even more wicked than Syria, Israel, and Judah? Yes. It is true that the Assyrians were an extremely wicked people, yet the Lord could use them as the rod of my anger. At the very same time, none of it excused Assyria. This does not excuse them. He says, he does not, he does not say to Assyria, okay, I want you to go wipe out my people, all right? And, and because of that, then I'll, I'll forgive you of everything. No, doesn't do that. He uses their anger, their wickedness and all as a rod of anger against his people. But it doesn't excuse Assyria. And so the Lord says to them, woe to Assyria. Now something similar happens in the case of the Babylonians as well. Because the Lord raised up the Babylonian armies between 686 and 605 B.C. to punish Judah. We read some of that in Habakkuk chapter 1, the, the, the minor prophet Habakkuk. And by the way, there are major prophets and minor prophets. The major prophets, and we talked about this when we started the book of Isaiah, but the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, they're, they're just major prophets because they've got bigger books, longer books, many more chapters. The minor prophets just have smaller letters, but they're major in, in content. So the book of Habakkuk has this prophecy in it. Notice in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says, For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, by the way the Chaldeans are the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. Their fly as the eagle, or they fly as the eagle that hastens to heat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense ascribing this power to his God. Well, that's quite a description there. Habakkuk's not a happy guy with the Lord. You know, saying, why are you allowing this, Lord? For these fish worshipers, you know, too. Actually, fish net worshipers, you know, to do this to your people. But the Lord pronounced judgment on Babylon, folks. You see, in Habakkuk chapter 2, when God begins to talk, in verse 6 it says, Will not all these take a proverb against him, and a taunting riddle against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his? How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you, and you will become their booty? In other words, their spoils. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and, all, and of all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. This is God's judgment against Babylon. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Now later on in Isaiah chapter 14, again, verses 3 through 5, it says, It shall come to pass in the day of the Lord, in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, 
the scepter of the rulers. By the way, there are no more Assyrians and there are no more Babylonians. Why? Because God judged them for their treatment of His people. God was chastising His people. Folks, understand that when it comes to the way some people today think that God has forsaken all of Israel. He hasn't. He never has. That's why there's always a believing remnant. That's why there's always a remnant to talk about. He hasn't forsaken His people. And it's passages like this to let you know that the ones that don't make it are the ones that oppress them. The ones that treat them wrong. God judges them. So first of all, consider that the rod and the staff, as they're mentioned you know, in our text about Assyria, that the rod and the staff were, were sticks used by shepherds. It's the same language here. By shepherds to guide and to correct sheep. This is my rod of anger. Well, he says he's trying to correct his sheep. He's not trying to destroy them and wipe them off the face of the earth. What the Lord is saying is that Assyria was like a stick in his hand, used to correct Syria, used to correct Israel and Judah. Secondly, consider that Assyria was, to a certain extent, on a mission from God. They, they were doing the Lord's will, running the Lord's, uh, um, running the Lord's errors, you know, or, or uh, errands, I should say. I misspelled something here, and I'm like, whoa, what did I do? But they're running the Lord's errands when they came against Syria, Israel, and Judah. God gave them permission, you see, to seize the spoil, to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire in the streets. Notice that in the text. But notice verse 7. It says, Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so. And so since Assyria was an instrument in God's hand, since they were doing the will of God, does this excuse their attack on Syria, Israel, and Judah? Not at all. Even though they were instruments in the Lord's hand, they did not mean so. In other words, nor does their heart, his heart think so. In other words, they didn't care at all about God's will. They didn't care about God's glory in the matter. Instead, notice what's in their heart. It is in their heart to destroy and to cut off not a few nations. They wanted to eat up all the nations. They wanted total domination of the world, or what they knew to be the whole world at that time. Assyria didn't care about the glory of God. It didn't care about the will of God. They just wanted to destroy. And by the way, in Psalm 76, verse 10, it says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. <laughs> Interesting verse. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Even the things that Assyria had to do and were doing for their own benefit was praising God. Why? Because God was judging His people, chastising His people, awakening His people to look to Him again. And God is able to use the wickedness and the carnality of man to further His will without ever approving of the wickedness or carnality. In fact, He is totally justified in judging the very wickedness and carnality that He used. As a matter of fact, there is a pattern repeated over and over in Scripture. Take, for example, that Joseph's brother sinned against Joseph, but God used it for his purpose and disciplined Joseph's brothers, by the way. Saul sinned against David, but God used it for his purpose and he judged Saul. 
Judas sinned against Jesus, but God used it for his purpose, and yet he judged Judas. It's a similar pattern, you see. By the way, in that story of Joseph and his brothers, the tremendous verse of Scripture you need to take home with you. It's Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that says, as Joseph is speaking to his brothers who are like just wiped out because, you know, they discovered this was his brother that they thought they had killed and gotten rid of. And finding that he was second in command of all of Egypt. And after all of that, this is what he says to his brothers. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You see, God can use anything and everything and everyone for His glory and for His people. Listen to the words in Micah chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. It says, Be in pain and labor to bring forth. This is talking about labor pains, so this is kind of a prophetic issue. We've talked about that. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. Nor do, they, nor do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. See, when they think that they have God's people and they're surrounding God's people, they say, we're going to wipe them out. The city's going to be ours. Guess what? It ain't going to happen. Pardon my French. It ain't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. Why? He says, they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. Nor do they understand his counsel. Folks, that's why prophecy today points to the Temple Mount having a temple on it. We don't see the temple right now. We see the Al-Aqsa Mosque. We see the Dome of the Rock Mosque on the Temple Mount. That is the very center of the tinderbox that is called Jerusalem today. But God knows his thoughts. God knows his counsel. And as we read prophecy, we realize there's going to be a temple on that side. How? God knows. When? God knows. God knows these things. And woe to those who act against his people it's going to happen I can't explain it and I can't give you details but it's going to happen woe to those because they haven't seen the thoughts or the counsel of God they're acting on their own and they shall be judged Romans 8.28 we're all familiar with this verse and we know and we know Folks, think about those first three words and ask yourself, do you know? Paul is confident enough to say, and we know that all 
things. How many things? How many things? Not some. Not most. Not 95%. Not even 99%. All things. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. So what's the converse? What's the other side? If you don't love God, all things don't work together for you. I'm sorry, folks. If you do not love God, all things don't work for you. People start judging God. People start saying things about God. God did this. God did that. Why did he do this? Why did he do that? They, and, and they get into this thing about hating God and, and distrusting God and say, well, you know what, then there, has, there can't possibly be a God. Well, no, there is a God. And when you love Him, all things work together for you. To those who love Him, to those who are the called according to His purpose. There is an end to all that follow their sinful intentions to their completions or to their completion without ever considering the Lord's will or purposes. The arrogance and the pride of Assyria to destroy all nations in its path would meet its end with its own destruction. And as I said before, there is no Assyrian empire today. I want to close with Proverbs 16. So turn there. Mark verses 17 through 22. I'm just going to read them and we're going to pray. Proverbs 16, 17 says, The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who keeps his way preserves his soul. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit or an arrogant or um, conceited spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He who heeds the word wisely will find good and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. The wise in heart will be called prudent, and sweetness of the lips increases learning. Understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it, but the correction of fools is folly. The last phrase there, the correction of fools is folly, this literally means the correction of fools is foolish. (laughs) The more you try to correct fools, it's foolish because they're not learning anything through the correction. But everything else, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. Keep your way, it preserves your soul. Be of a humble spirit. Heed the words wisely. Trust in the Lord and happy will you be. The wise in heart will be called prudent. And sweetness of the lips increases learning. Now what wonderful benefits there are when we love Jesus. What wonderful benefits there are when we love God. When we trust Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Man, what benefits. Don't miss out on those benefits.